You are listening to Checkbox Outreach, a podcast that showcases excellence and raises awareness of current issues from those who are directly impacted, but typically not at the table. Now, here are your hosts, Aaliyah Gaskins and Katie Leonard. Hey, welcome to Checkbox Outreach. This is Katie. And this is Aaliyah. And today we are joined by Patrick Ingram. And I was thinking about how to introduce him. And honestly, I'm at a loss for words because his story is so powerful. I'm just so excited and inspired by his story. Um, Today, we're going to touch on issues of public health, advocacy, local government, burnout. I can see the conversation going in many different directions, but I think you are in for a treat and about to meet just an amazing human being. So welcome to the show, Patrick. Thank you so much. I'm, um, I, I appreciate you having me on, and uh, I look forward to a very productive conversation. <laughs> Patrick, I will. I want the world to know you are 100% one of my favorite people on this earth. Your Thank you. passion for you know HIV work, your passion for advocating for those that sometimes don't have a voice or many times don't have a voice. You've just yeah. always inspired me. You've lifted me up when I was down and I'm just excited <laughs> to share you with the world. So if you don't mind, just give us a little bit of context about yourself, about your journey, how you got into the HIV advocacy space, and then we'll lead into where you are now. Right. Well, I'll first off by saying, um, you know, we've had a lot of times planning our lives and laying on your uh, office floor trying to um, <laughs> figure out how we're going to move forward with our lives. I forgot <laughs> laying I'm on the office I'm floor. I'm sorry I missed these times. I want to be invited. <laughs> these were amazing, like, woosaw sessions because we... Well, I guess we'll get into that, but we we used to we used to go through it, but um yeah. So um, my name is uh, Patrick Ingram. Wait, and, pause. Um, I'm sorry because I'm just really excited. Remember when we went to get faux, and the guy thought we were married, and he was trying to tell yes. you that you had to like treat me right and buy me all this yes. stuff. And I was like, uh, yeah, no. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'm sorry. I digress. Go back into who you are and how great you are. So no. So, um, <laughs> which is funny because I was like, um, sir, I, uh, I'm, I'm gay. But um, yeah, to, to kind of bring it back around. Yeah, my name is Patrick Ingram and um, my family says I've done it all. But I um, was diagnosed with HIV in 2011. And um, when, when, I, when that happened, it was, you know, basically uh, the person at the health department telling me that, you know, if you're not suicidal, you can leave. So I had to I guess you could say be resilient and go along that journey alone. And when I went home, I tried to go online and look on YouTube and all these other uh, locations to try to see if I could identify with somebody who was going through the same thing that I was going through, but but I couldn't find anybody. So um, I guess after a year of, of after connecting to care, getting on medication and getting my, my mental health um, at a level where I could deal uh, with the, the new reality of living with HIV, I uh, made the decision to start my own uh, YouTube channel, Pause Life with Patrick. And so, um, you know, it it started with me just telling my story on how how I was diagnosed, and that expanded over the years, and that guided me that got me more involved in wanting to be um, an advocate. Because, you know, the reality is, is that, you know, as a brown person, but more specifically a young brown person who is gay, we don't necessarily always have a seat at the table. So um, that started with a lot of advocacy work that led to me um, in 2015 being noted as, you know, a, a young person to watch, to being involved, invited to the United States Conference on HIV and uh, being listed as, you know, one of the 
one of the um, HIV Plus magazine's 20 Amazing HIV Positive Gay Men. You know, it, you know, it, it, it's just, you know, I just wanted to be, I guess, in my mind, a trailblazer, but more importantly, opening paths and opportunities up for other people like me. Um, and that started the advocacy work. You know, we, um, my, you know, my, the team that I had and the people that I worked alongside with throughout this journey have been nothing but supportive. And, um, and it's, and it's up and there, there's ups and downs to it. You know, I started working at an agency that after two weeks of me being employed there shut down. And then, you know, I got jumped over to another agency that after years of doing hard work for them, we started to challenge some ethical decisions that they tried to make and we got let go, uh, myself and somebody else included. So that led me to work at uh, the Virginia Department of Health. And, you know, I, I guess for me, that was one of the first times that I experienced uh, bureaucracy. And that closed one chapter of kind of my nonprofit life and opened up a new chapter um, working for a government. That was a lot. I'm sorry. <laughs> I mean, I was sitting here thinking that basically your family was right. You have done it all and you have seen it all. <laughs> oh, he forgot to mention he was in the Navy. Yeah, like... I was in the Coast Guard. <laughs> oh, and then Coast on top Guard, of that, that was. I was like a park ranger and then I did. I <laughs> so basically we have like 15 different, 15 different podcasts just based on your, your work history. And I've, I've done it all, I, you know, and it was, I, and I guess, I guess as we all could at this, you know, in this conversation can say when, you know, when we're, you're in your twenties or your, you know, your early twenties, you get a job, you're there for three months. And I guess it's a millennial thing, but after three months, you're like, I don't like this. So then like, you know, you start looking for other jobs, like you kind of find a way to get let go. I mean, that's how it was. And I, that's why I did it all, you know, and that's yep. what led me to flying for airline and then working at a um, higher end Carvino agency. And then which led to me, you know, finding out my diagnoses and moving on and transitioning into um, nonprofit work. So I want to go back to where you started when you were telling your story and you talked about what it was like when you first found out that you were diagnosed with HIV and the person across from you basically saying, okay, if you're not suicidal, go home. Right now we're in the midst of this conversation, you know, with the light on COVID-19 about some of the challenges in our healthcare system. But I'm just wondering if you could talk a little bit about your journey from that perspective and the things you've had to navigate as you've worked to find out more about HIV and the resources available to you or not available and how you've had to navigate that system, but also what you're noticing about what it would take to create a better system um, for people in the same situation as you. I mean, I think I think with everything that we do, we have to be advocates for ourselves, right? So, you know, for me, um, I had to figure out where I where I should go to for care, um, and just and you know, for me, that's why I hit a brick wall. And I have one of my um, one of my amazing friends um, who was you know a positive as well, and you know he went with me to my first appointment. He, you know, didn't go in to see the doctor or the um, case manager, but he sat outside and waited. And I mean, for me, it was that, that kind of warm handoff that I needed. You know, if I didn't have that, you know, um, I'd probably would be lost. And, you know, I think it's about your, your support structure. And for me, once I found out my status, I started to share that with friends and I, I, people just stopped talking to me. People would tell me, we didn't, we don't want anything to deal with you, you know? And, and I talk about that in my YouTube video, how I found out I was HIV positive, but you know, I could just say in short that I lost a lot of people and your, my true friends really shine through. And so from taking me to my appointment, um, you know, to calling me and checking on me, I think that that was a major facet of me kind of being more comfortable and being more proactive. But I think 
everybody has to be resilient. So if you're dealing with uh, diagnoses of um, MS, if you're dealing with a, di- a cancer diagnosis, resiliency is a, is, a, is a major piece of that puzzle, but also never accepting no for an answer. You know, there were times where, you know, I would be told that, no, we can't, we can't do this. And I, I'd fight and I'd advocate for myself to, to make sure that that insurance company would accept um, that medication or to make sure that my my concerns were, were understood or, or met. So I think a piece of that, which is kind of um, a piece that can be utilized when we look at COVID-19 is that, for instance, you know, I'm a flight attendant, so I, I actually got sick when I got back from London, and um, we didn't know if it was COVID-19. You know, so my, my husband got sick, and I got sick, and we were calling around, and nobody would see us, and, you know, we finally got through with my employer's um, workplace injury um, company that handles those claims, and, you know, they we had to advocate to make sure that they would send us to an emergency room to get tested. And, you know, throughout that entire experience, you know, we had to continue to fight. And by the time we went and got tested, it had already been a week and those symptoms had been gone, but, you know, we still followed through and those test results came back negative, but, you know, it's frustrating in a, in a, in a, in a, in a world where celebrities like Kylie Jenner, who's at home, you know, on her compound can get a COVID-19 test when, when actual first line defenders, flight attendants, medical providers, doctors, um, emergency respond, firefighters can't get tested, but celebrities can. And I think that we have to. So based on that and, and your experience in advocacy, how do you get people to care? So you have come from a super stigmatized realm, whether that's a black man, a gay man, an HIV positive man, so how do you get people to take notice without getting angry? Because I struggle with that. I walk the line of I'm pissed off. I'm irate. I'm going to send some hate emails and some angry emails. But that <laughs> <laughs> you don't get anywhere with that. So what, what have you found right. that works for you to actually get people to hear you and to care? Well, I think the big, you know, when I was a kid and you know, I'm from the South, so um, my father and my mom would always say, don't let that person get your goat. So, you know, it's an old saying, but basically you can't let somebody see you sweat. You can't let somebody see you upset. You know, it's the same thing when we look at the the progression of, you know, of a black folk being in the room, you know, and, and being present and, and having, you know, considerable contributions to give to a conversation or an issue. I think you have to force your way into the room and show up and people can say whatever they want to say about you or they can say whatever, but you got to keep moving. You know, you got to continue to move forward to accomplish your goals and your dreams and your vision or your mission. I mean, at the end of the day, there's plenty of people out there that don't like me and 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 it's fair. You know, I can't make everybody happy, but what I can do is I can continue to move forward to work on the things that I want to work on. And in, in regards to like the HIV work, you know, there were people that didn't like me. There are people, you know, and, and I hate that that's how things w- were, but I, I wish that we were in an environment that we all worked, you know, collectively together for a common good, but it's here or there. You know, I think we all, you, you have to push yourself and, and not any, let anybody get you down. I think it's, it's about making your presence known. And, and, you know, when people realize that the words or the side remarks don't work, that's when you can really get in there and do the work. The theme of pushing yourself, hustle harder has come up in several of our, our interviews and just this idea that the systems we're trying to change is going to take us a while to change. The policies Absolutely. many of us are advocating for, it's going to take years for some of those things to either pass or when they do pass to be implemented correctly. And so in the meantime, what's each of our personal fight? What are we willing to sacrifice or to risk in order to keep going and to keep pushing to make these things happen? I just admire your resiliency. I admire your ability to not take no for 
an answer and I um, just am inspired by your story. Well, it's, it's, it's just about, you know, it's, it's about those conversations that we've had with our parents at the kitchen table when we were younger and they would tell you, you know, for my, for instance, my parents would tell me, you know, you're black, you're a man, and then you're gay. And then now you're positive. It's not, this life is not going to be easy for you. And I think that all of us, especially folks of color and especially women have had that conversation with their parents. And so, you know, we have to take that, that, that narrative and we have to re reverse the way we, we look at it. You know, I look at it as a way to, to, to make opportunity to, again, like I said, blaze a trail for somebody behind me. So one of the things I want to touch on is you are actively working to blaze the trail for the next generation. Um, I know when Katie and I were talking to you earlier, you mentioned that you're currently running for office. Can you talk a little bit about what led you to pursue local office and what are some of the changes you hope to see or hope to create? Yeah, so um, I moved to Petersburg, Virginia last year in uh, 2019, and I'll give you a little bit of a story. I hope we're not uh, short on time, but um, yeah, I moved. Okay, so I moved in on a Friday. First off, I'll say Petersburg, Virginia is a fantastic city. You know, we we have history. Um, we have the Appomattox that runs through for great fishing and just relaxation. We're across the water from Virginia State University. Um, you know, we have great shopping. Um, and, and it's just, it's a, like I said, there's a lot of history here. But that doesn't come without its problems. So, you know, I, I went to turn on my water and, you know, it, they never connected it. You know, we paid to have it connected on a Friday, you know, right before holiday weekend, they never connected it. So, you know, it. I emailed my ward member, my council member, um, the mayor, the vice mayor, and the city manager. No one ever responded. And that was a Friday evening. So, you know, it took me messaging the Petersburg Instagram account. And um, the person who handles that account, her name is Kimmy, had to call somebody out to do an emergency water uh, uh, connection. So that transition to us having to fight to pay our water bill for the past couple of months. And, you know, we, they, they weren't giving us a bill and we were going up there every week and trying to get a bill or try to figure out why we weren't being billed. And so, you know, there's just a lot of systematic issues. I think currently right now in the uh, city of Petersburg, throughout this pandemic, we have, uh, at one point we had 46 people in the city without water. I don't know if you all had, um, have gotten that news story, but we had uh, 46 people in the city with, without water. So those are families and individuals um, who may have a need. Well, a, a, water is a need, but you may have folks who, um, who may need it, you know, like without it, water because they're, it got shut off or just without they, water because there was no hookup. Correct. So, um, so they were disconnected uh, prior to the end of, uh, January of, of 2020. So, um, right after, uh, governor Northam, um, issued that executive order, I guess there was a piece of, um, recommendation from the sec that although people's water may be cut off, uh, before that order, they recommended that utility companies connect water for people who had had it previously cut off. So Petersburg had not connect, reconnected those accounts, water that had, people had not been able to um, have reconnected because of non-payment. So I guess for me, that public health side comes in because, you know, water is a right. It's, it's not a privilege. And, you know, in, in an epidemic or excuse me, a pandemic where you have individuals um, that are, are being begged are being asked by the federal government to wash their hands. How can you? You do not have water. You have no water to wash your hands to bathe your body. So you're 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 no you're a danger to yourself. You're a threat to yourself, but also individuals in your community. So seeing the the municipal government's response to this crisis that we're having in the city by blaming others, 
by not stepping up and being proactive, has led me to create a committee and uh, a run and begin a run for council member for uh, Petersburg uh, Ward 6. That's awesome. So Petersburg has wards. Can you, like, what are Correct. Wards? So we have... So we, it's, it's paved out. So the city is cut up into seven different parts and you have wards. So constituents in each ward select someone to represent them on the city council. So I'm, I'm in ward six. So I represent the people of ward six, but on top of that, I represent, you know, the entire city. So my goal right now is to petition to be on the ballot. I have to collect 125 signatures. Now we know that the reality is, you know, we may get signatures that where people don't, aren't registered to vote or that they don't live in our particular ward. They may not be able or qualify to vote. So, you know, we, we're ga- we're aiming for 200. So we're looking to get those signatures so we can be viable so that we can be on the November ballot and not have to be forced to be a write-in uh, candidate. So before COVID-19, we were already facing challenges around, you know, voter registration, voter suppression issues. Can you talk a little bit about what you're seeing on the campaign trail as to how this current moment is affecting elections? elections like how do you get signatures when we're supposed to be socially distanced yeah absolutely that, that's difficult so for instance on monday we went on the north side of petersburg um for the most part it's, it's typically not the same it's um you could tell that folks are middle class or on the lower end of the socioeconomic spectrum um and there's a lot of fear you know we have a lot of we have um last year we had a record-breaking number of homicides in our city. So you tie that in with the pandemic that, you know, we still don't know much about and people are scared to come to their doors and the people that do come to their doors, they're not, they don't even know who their council member is. A lot of people um, had felonies, but they didn't realize that within the Commonwealth, once you have served your time and you, um, you are eligible to have your voting rights or your civil rights restored. So people didn't know that. So we spent a lot of time um, and it was very tedious, but we spent a lot of time educating people on why it was important why it's important to vote, why it's important to know who your council member is, how to contact them, but also how to, why it's important for, to have your civil rights restored. So Monday we took, it was a lot of energy being burned, just trying to explain those basic things for folks. And folks were even afraid to come to their doors. And we get that, you know, with social distancing, um, you know, we had our mask on, we had hand sanitizer out. Uh, we were actually giving out bottles of water to folks to make sure that, you know, because we don't know who's without water right now. So it's, it's again, a, a right to have water. So we were handing out waters and we were just trying to show presence because we could tell um, right out right out the first door that our council members were not coming around. And, you know, you could reach the conclusion that only during election cycles that they come around. And after that, you know, they kind of are reclusive and stay within their That's own areas. Issue. I feel like with local leader, with any elected leader, it's because the way that our system is set up and you touched on this a little bit earlier that once people get in office, they're always just campaigning after that because they're campaigning and fundraising. And so the issues are the issues, but they're focused on their funds and who raises the most money right. typically, you know, wins the seat. And that is such a frustration of mine. If we can somehow eliminate that barrier to be like, when you get in office, do your job and that's it. Like right. and w- let the fundraising and everything else kind of be a a separate aspect of that, but our system's not set up for that. So I get it. I'm not mad. Right. And you'll probably be in the same position. Like there's a balance. But I'll tell you, you know, there was a very competitive delegate race uh, for state delegate here in our area. And it was, um, Rosalind Dance. It was a primary, so it was Rosalind Dance versus uh, Joe Morrissey. Well, Rosalind Dance fundraised four hundred and eighty-four thousand dollars compared to um, Joe Morrissey's thirty-eight thousand wow. dollars, and Joe Morrissey beat her. Really? 
soundly. You never he hear about that. This is a rare case, and I'm trying to replicate that model. <laughs> <laughs> Patrick, can you talk a little bit about, I feel like local elections get, uh, I have to work on not swearing. I thought they get shitted on, but I am trying to think of a better word. But local elections often get skipped over. People don't think of how important they are and how much they matter. And I'm just wondering if you could talk a little bit about why now more than ever is it important to pay attention to local elections like city council, like mayors? Well, I, I think it's like a trickle down. Um, and I hate to use this term because I hate it, but hate it's like a trickle down. Trickle down. I'm with you on that. But, but it is. It. It's trickled down from our current administration, and I don't know your p political views, but from the current administration and rhetoric, it trickles down into local government. So a perfect example is the fight for people to bear arms. So they, you know, they want uh, first or uh, second amendment sanctuary cities, and that, and that's a piece of it. You know, who you elect can dictate. You know. Um, local policy. It can dictate, you know, taxes. It can dictate, you know, or if you're going to be um, expanding um, trails alongside rivers, like our, our city that we have right now. So it dictates a lot, especially in Petersburg, we have a huge issue with um, houses being impaired or, or blight. So it, who you elect can, can really and truly address those issues. Uh, it can address the issues of, you know, property tax. It, but I think also the, the your schools, I mean, local elections exactly. impact your schools and their funding and your public safety, as well as technology. You know, you look at a place like Arlington, Virginia, and how, you know, um, advanced they are in terms of, um, it's, they're a whole other level of government, but, you know, a Petersburg can be that, but it, it requires sound um and responsible and transparent it's transparent leadership that's what it requires and so that's why local elections are are, are critical i mean we can vote for president all day long but if you have a city council that's uh, corrupt or um, not interested in the public or other constituents you will have a tough four to eight to 28 years it will be difficult i think we could talk like eight hours on that which i welcome you back anytime you want to come back so we're all about an impact and this is about moving the needle and supporting other change makers and so your journey from, I'm an advocate, I'm very interested in community, I see these community issues, to, you know what, I'm considering running for council, now I'm actually doing it. What is, if there are other people kind of in that same boat as you, and kind of just wondering what that first step is, right? From caring, from being concerned or angry, like what did they, what did you actually have to do to get the ball rolling? Right. So it was about having conversations with my labor and my campaign um, manager, Ethel Washington. She uh, is a very good advisor, a very good manager. And we just spent a lot of time at the kitchen table having discussions about our. Wait, how um, did you get a uh, campaign manager? So even before right, that. So, yeah. Start before that. Well, I well, she I asked her to be mine. But before all of the election took place, before all of that, she was a, she's a good friend of mine. She's my neighbor. So we would used to sit at the t kitchen table and just talk about issues with the city, talk about what we can do or how we can do that. And so I, I to be honest, at first I told her, you know, you you've lived here all your life. You should run. You should run for a city council. And she, you know, she didn't want to do it. She wasn't feeling it. So then, you know, when our, you know, when we started looking at the water situation and the pandemic and, you know, I, I said, you know, if you don't run, I'm going to run. And she said, you know, if you run, I'll support you. So I asked her to be my campaign manager. And I think, you know, ab about that is knowing your city, you know, or knowing somebody who's knowledgeable of your city, but also knowing the process. When I tell you this process in the Commonwealth of Virginia to, to be on a local ballot or even any kind of ballot 
It is complex. And don't even get me started about the complexities of campaign finance. It is just a complex and difficult task. So I think it's it's frustrating because that's what's restrictive uh, to to for folks to be able to have that ability to run for office. But it's not it's not impossible. Well, Patrick, we are so glad to have had you on the show today. Your story is inspiring. I think you're charged for people to take action. And when they see an issue, not to hold back, but to go for it. And it means putting their name on the ballot or supporting a friend in doing so, really creating the change that we hope to see. So if our listeners want to stay engaged with you or follow your campaign, what's the best way for them to do that? Yeah, so we are on Facebook. Uh, we are uh, Patrick Ingram for Petersburg City Council. Uh, we are on Twitter, Patrick for Petersburg, and Instagram, Patrick for Petersburg. So you can find us there. Well, Patrick, you, again, have proven that you're amazing, you're wonderful, and I love your light. I love what you're trying to do, and I'm super grateful that you shared your time with us today. Thank you. I really appreciate y'all bringing me here to just talk about um, what I've done and what we're doing to make Petersburg a, a better place. It's time for action. Checkbox Outreach is more than a podcast and simply putting a check in a box. This is about impact and moving the needle. Aaliyah and Katie, what are the next steps? All right, Katie, another great episode. I feel like each of the people we've had on this show challenges me and exposes me to things that I have never talked about before. I mean, specifically with Patrick, I don't think I've ever had a conversation about HIV disparities in our communities. So I appreciate him being so vulnerable. I also, as you know, love talking about elections and local politics. So I think we have a lot to jump into and dissect right now. But why don't we start with you? What were your key takeaways? My true public health nerd came out in the HIV piece just because I know the work that gets done in the local sector, and I know that a lot of people just aren't paying attention to it, or they think that they shouldn't care about it. For me, it was really looking at when he talked about the organizations that he's worked for, and a lot of times these nonprofit or even local government organizations are so poorly funded, and it's really important to me that we talk about how are we really funding these groups because they are doing great efforts in advocacy and in prevention. And so I actually did a little homework and recently, I didn't even know this, this is horrible, but President Trump actually committed to eradicating HIV by 2030. I had no idea that he- I, I did not know that either. <laughs> I was shocked. So in his budget, he put hundreds of millions of dollars for HIV prevention. But what we kind of talked about before on another show with Melanie, actually, and talking about the Koch brothers, the policies that he's putting forth for HIV prevention and care is being undone when in the budget he takes away from Medicare and other social service organizations. So when people can't have access to care, or access to treatment, but yet you're putting all this money in this pot on the other side, you're undoing the work. There was also a cut to global AIDS prevention and care. And so just these conversations need to be had more robustly because funding is of the utmost importance when we're talking about this work. So this has definitely been a theme in many of our episodes. The fact that you cannot just talk about one issue and ignore its connections to other things. So, for example, when we talked about criminal justice reform, we had to also talk about education and the school to prison yeah. pipeline. Yep. If we're talking about funding for prevention, and I'm assuming, you know, I'd have to look up, you know, what was actually proposed by the administration. But when you say prevention, my mind goes to education, sort of behavioral health interventions that has to be coupled with conversations about health care and health care 
reform and what it looks like for people to actually be able to access preventative care. And so I think just really driving home that point that these things are so connected and we have to be willing to have conversations about these broader intersections in order to actually get to the root of what contributes to the health outcomes and the health disparities that we see in our communities. Absolutely. The other piece was just looking at the overall data, right? And I'm going to read this because I'm not good at memorizing statistics. According to the CDC website, and they have data from 2014, we can talk about the lag in public health data another time. In 2014, the diagnosis rate for HIV cases in the U.S. was 13.8 per 100,000 of the population. Among Blacks and African Americans, the diagnosis rate was 49.4 among the same group, among 100,000 of the population. And so that disparity is clearly very apparent. Wow. When you look at who is diagnosed, Blacks that are diagnosed are much less likely than any other group to be linked to care, to be retained in care, and also to receive antiretroviral medications. When you just look at the disparities of we, we're offering services or how we're reaching out to these groups, these gaps are massive and they've been there over time. So what's frightening about what you just said is how those trends also show up in other diseases and illnesses. So I don't know if you've been tracking or reading a lot of the reports coming out about COVID-19, but it's the same language that Blacks are less likely to re receive care, less likely to receive appropriate care, and are more likely to have negative complications or consequences or even death from the coronavirus. And so I think it's something, again, going back to these things play out in communities, not just in you know one particular area, but across many different chronic conditions that affect our health of individual men and women, but also the overall health of black and brown communities. And going back to what we were talking about on a different show, and that these are racist policies that were put in place that put people of color in the communities in which they live. And the policies that are in place are what's impacting the systems that put people in the positions of what you were just talking about. And so we can't sit there and have this cap one to say, oh, you know, this is a black issue. Let it let them solve it. It's looking at income and looking at job opportunities and who has health insurance and what that looks like if you don't have health insurance. Those are the conversations that we also have to be having when we're talking about some of these disparities in public health. Exactly. I'm a big believer that in order to really address the disparities in our community and get at the root, policy change is key. So my big takeaway from the conversation is that it is so important for if we want to have change in our communities, we need to have more bright and brilliant people like Patrick running for office and getting more people of color represented in our, as elected officials. And so I would just encourage our listeners, if you're looking for something to do, get involved. If you don't think you want to run for office and you know somebody who would be amazing, ask them. Um, I was reading on She Should Run that often the number one reason why women don't run for office is because nobody asked them. Nobody said you would make a good candidate. Yeah. Have you thought about running for Isn't office? Isn't that their whole, I mean, that's how they kind of started, right? Yeah. It's the whole thing. Ask a woman. Ask yeah. a woman to run. It's something very simple. If you don't know anybody who you can ask, go Google and find out about the candidates in your area and put some money behind them. Donate to their campaign. Donate to Patrick. Yeah. So, I mean, I think that's just really important. But there important. are so many 
platforms and groups. So I don't know what got into me with this episode and the research, because this is very much not like me. People that know me, I am not the, the detail black and white type person. I love the gray area. But there are so many groups out there that are doing just that. And I was surprised to learn there's actually one called 314 Action that's actually STEM focused. So getting people who are involved in STEM into the political space. And then there's also the Victory Institute, and that's a LGBTQ plus friendly platform that they want LGBTQ plus people to run for office. I didn't even know those existed. I'm like, so like the internet is great. It's like, I just learned the internet recently. It is. I hadn't heard of those two, but I am familiar. Um, There's Latinas Represent, um, which is designed to increase Latina representation. There's Higher Heights, which is focused on African-American women. There's the... um, I think it's called the Advanced Native Political Leadership, which is focused on Native Americans. So there's a lot of groups out there that are really focused on traditionally underrepresented groups. And again, donate, 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 donate. (laughs) And the donation piece is something that I've always taken issue with about political campaign financing and how the the people who are just getting into the space can't compete. And so the system has supported very wealthy men, very wealthy white men to be legislators, especially at the federal level. And when you come in and you try to compete with that, you can't out fundraise that, right? This is generational wealth that you're coming up against and generational networks. And I was talking to one of my friends who's a local elected official and I was like, your success in your campaign is only as good as the net worth of your network. And so to bring about real change, we have to come together and pool our money because the people who are in those seats right now have a head start in more ways than one. Exactly. And I think too, we have to start getting really creative, especially now in the coronavirus time on how we connect with voters and how we do outreach. I mean, Patrick was talking about this is not a season where you're going around and knocking on people's doors. So someone like him who may not be very well known in his community may also be hustling and trying to do whatever he can to get the not only the political connections, but the finance connections that you just mentioned. How do we leverage virtual platforms and creative thinking to get these candidates actually out there where people can see their platforms, see their positions, learn about them and do what they can to fuel their campaign while they're sitting at home? Yeah. And once they get elected to actually revisit those financing requirements and funding requirements, because like I said, many like elected officials are always just in a season of fundraising and it's they're not really focusing. They don't have the time to focus on the issues. They have to raise the money for the next campaign and the next election. And that's so unfortunate because I'm not saying there aren't great people who aren't elected to office, but they get caught up in the churn and in the cycle of I need to get reelected. So let me not be as vocal. I need to get reelected. So let me go to this event so I can fundraise. And the issue to me in the Katie Leonard perspective, takes a backseat. And we need more people who will charge the gates and say, I'm going to be issue focused. I'm okay with being a one-term elected official, but this is the platform that I'm trying to use to elevate this issue and make real change. I mean, that's the very challenge that came up when Patrick spoke about the reason why he wants to run, that an issue, an issue as basic as people having clean water on, especially in the middle of a crisis where the best advice you have is to wash your hands. That issue in terms of how, you know, the moratorium on utility shutoffs is being implemented was being overlooked and ignored for specific communities. And so I think you're raising a really good point that when 
I don't want to say the I don't think the word distracted is what I'm looking for, but when our elected officials maybe aren't paying attention to or don't know how different policies are being implemented in their communities, things like this get overlooked and the communities that need the most support, especially those with the lowest incomes, are struggling. Yeah. And I will just point out, if we're talking about lowest incomes, people struggling in water, Flint, Michigan still does not have clean water. So with all of these great concepts and issues that we talked about, what are the next steps that our listeners can take to take this conversation to the next level? So two action steps that I want to drive home, and we've talked about this in other episodes as well, pay attention to local elections, vote, donate, get involved in some way. The other thing is really around the issue that was brought up around water utilities. And for me, I was mind blown. This is not something I had paid as much attention to. And so something I'd love our listeners to be thinking about is currently there's legislation in Congress that's looking at a potential version of the LIHEAP program. So for those who don't know, LIHEAP is the Low Income Home Energy Assistance Program, and it provides low-income households with assistance to be able to pay for their heating and cooling needs. And so there's a version uh, being floated around of could we have something similar to help people with their water? And so I think paying attention to legislation like this at the federal level, or even if your states are doing something innovative in this space, I believe that water is a basic human right. And we need to make sure that all communities have clean water. So getting involved on water issues and legislation to make sure that that's a reality in your community would be another takeaway for me or action stuff that I'd want to see people push. Yeah, for sure. Getting involved anyway. I mean, I've been in positions where I'm like, I can't fund you, but I can make phone calls. I can help you post on social media. There are so many ways to get involved. The other resource that is available when when we talk about voting is Ballotpedia. Again, new refined Katie Leonard. I just discovered that website again today, but it breaks down your state offices, your schools, your magistrate, everything, your circuit court, your district court. And so you type in your zip code or you type in your full address and all of your elected officials pop up. There's also guidance on there about how you can get involved, how you can run in your state. It's just a wealth of great information. It blew my mind. And I'm embarrassed to say I just discovered it, but whatever, we all have to start somewhere. Um, Basically, everyone should do their homework, like Katie. Yeah. (laughs) Even if you're just starting now, it's fun. (laughs) I'm telling you. But I usually just rely on smart people like you because you're so research focused. I'm like, bet she's giving me all the information I need to know. The other thing in actually running for local elections is important. There are so many barriers that are presented for people in navigating that system. And like Patrick was talking about the signatures, which he did successfully get all his signatures. He is officially on the ballot. You can do that research at your um, like local or at the state elections website. There's a lot of information on there about the requirements, the dates of when you have to file certain paperwork. So definitely check that out. I almost forgot one of the most important takeaways from the whole episode was when Patrick was talking about what his dad told him. And when his dad was like, you're black, you're gay, and you're positive, this life is not going to be easy for you. And I just felt like that was so moving for me to actually have a parent to, one, see that in their child and actually have the courage to say that. But life is not easy for so many people in our country, in our neighborhoods, and we need to be intentional and we need to be aware of that and actually be about the change. Not only is life not 
easy. Life is complex. And that each, and I think what comes across and what his dad told him is that each of us has multiple identities. I think the technical term is intersectionality, but I am not just a woman. I am a black woman. I am a black woman of a certain income of from a certain place, raised in a certain way of a certain religion. I'm a Christian. All of that makes up who I am and more. And the same for you and the same for anybody else you meet. And I think recognizing how those different identities are at play really impacts our experience of the world around us, the connections we make, the opportunities we have, and I think just how how we show up. And so I, I think what his dad said is just so powerful. I think what even sits with me more is just how Patrick has had to carry each of those identities and navigate this world because of them. Yeah, for sure. And what he said, you have to be your own advocate, right? Luckily, he has the network and the support of his family. So definitely Patrick for Petersburg on all social media networks. I'm sure he would appreciate the likes, the follows, and definitely the campaign contributions. Absolutely. There's my next step. (laughs) Thank you so much for listening to another episode of Checkbox Outreach. Our episodes are available on iTunes and Spotify, as well as on our website at checkboxoutreach.com and on Twitter at Disrupt Outreach.